Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Flimsy staying slowing you down? Well, it's time to upgrade. Armadillo builds durable, North American-made tablet stands and kiosks. We're so confident, we offer a lifetime warranty. So, elevate your business and visit armadillo.com. That's A-R-M-O-D-I-L-O.com and use code ACAST for 5% off. Armadillo. Built to last. Designed to impress. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to season three, episode eight of They Walk Among Us a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. On January 2nd, 1998... 15-year-old Hannah de Turville left her home in Queen's Park, London to meet a friend. She never came home. The roots of the Notting Hill Carnival in London date back to the late 1950s, when both Brixton and Notting Hill had seen a considerable influx of people from different countries. The government encouraged emigration to Britain, as after the Second World War the countries within it faced a labour shortage. Thousands of West Indian immigrants joined the working class alongside scores of Irish, Spanish and Greek workers. Living conditions were cramped, and often accommodation had little or no running water, no indoor toilets and no electricity. This influx of new cultures wasn't always accepted. If you were black, you were often met with racism and denied the same housing and employment opportunities as someone from the white working class. Not only pubs, but some government-run agencies where you would find work and housing displayed signs which read, No Irish, no coloured, no dogs. Tensions boiled over after a marked increase in attacks on black families by far-right groups. These included the White Defence League, and Oswald Mosley's union movement. These groups regularly distributed pamphlets that displayed slogans like 
take action now, protect your jobs, stop coloured immigration, and houses for white people, not for coloured immigrants. This eventually led to the race riots during August and September in 1958. Around midnight on May 17th of the following year, Kelso Cochran, an Antiguan immigrant in his early 30s, was stabbed while walking home from hospital. In Antigua, Kelso had worked repairing fishing boats with his father before moving to the United States. But after problems with his marriage, Kelso borrowed money from his brother and travelled to England looking for a fresh start. He began studying law and supported himself by working as a carpenter. Only hours before the attack, he had been shopping at Portobello Market with his fiancée Olivia, but upon returning home, an injury to his thumb that he'd received at work required further medical attention, so he decided to head to the hospital. Kelso left his home at around 10.20pm and made his way to Paddington General Hospital. After receiving treatment and with his arm in a sling, he was only a few hundred yards from the front door of his flat when he was attacked by a group of young white men. Racial slurs flew, as did fists, and Kelso was punched, kicked, and eventually stabbed in the heart with a knife. Two black men who saw the attack ran to his aid, although the attackers fled when they were confronted. A taxi driver who witnessed the assault rushed Kelso to hospital, but he died an hour later. Robbery was said to have been the motive for Kelso Cochran's murder. Ian Forbes Leith, a detective superintendent who was leading the investigation, told newspapers at the time, We are satisfied that it was the work of a group of about six anti-law white teenagers who only had one motive in view, robbery or attempted robbery. The White Defence League distributed leaflets in the Notting Hill area suggesting Kelso Cochrane's death was orchestrated by the black community to frame the white and its purpose was to start a violent racial conflict. It was alleged that information about the attack was held back by police who feared a violent backlash if a white man was found responsible for the horrific death of a black man. It was later determined that the attack was racially motivated and Kelso's fiancée Olivia confirmed in a statement to police that his pockets had been emptied prior to him leaving the flat. Many in the community, both black and white, believe it was the first racist killing of a black man in modern Britain. Shortly after the attack, two white males had been picked up in an unmarked police car. 24-year-old labourer John Bregan and 20-year-old Patrick Digby, a catering boy in the Merchant Navy. They had attended a party near to where Kelso had been killed. They were questioned for 44 hours but were later released without charge. Two weeks before the attack, John Bregan had just been released from a three-year stint in prison for a racially motivated attack. He told the press, I was at a party in Southam Street with my friend Pat Digby. We left the party together after midnight and walked the streets looking for a couple of girls. People lying in the gutters in this area on a Saturday night aren't uncommon. We didn't know the man was stabbed, we just walked away. Another four people were rounded up and questioned and a blood-stained grey flannel pair of trousers were sent to Scotland Yard for analysis. One of the four men included Brian Donoghue, who spoke to the Daily Herald newspaper after being interviewed by police. He said, I was one of the four youths questioned at Harrow Road Police Station tonight. Three of my friends are still helping the police with their inquiries. Apparently one of my friends saw the murder. 
That is why police attach so much importance to his evidence. On May 18th, violence broke out and police reinforcements were sent to Notting Hill. A policeman spoke to the press and said, quote, The terror of the white teenage gangs in Notting Hill must be smashed. Not only do they vent their hooliganism on coloured people, but on whites and particularly on police officers. In contrast, the next day, a senior Scotland Yard officer was quoted in the press as saying, you will be doing the community a service by refraining from the suggestion that this is a racial murder. In the same article that detailed Scotland Yard's stance on the robbery, it claimed Kelso's last words were reported by the men who ran to his aid. He reportedly said, They asked me for money. I told them I had none. The Interracial Friendship Coordinating Council sent a letter to the Prime Minister requesting that a law be passed to make incitement to racial violence illegal and emphasised that citizens of colour in the UK have lost confidence in the ability of the law-enforcing agencies to protect them. The request was ignored. The chairman of the Committee of African Organisations said, We have completely lost faith in the British police force to protect us adequately. All we ask for is equal and unbiased protection by the British police. A funeral for Kelso Cochrane took place on June 6, 1959 at St Michael's and All Angels Church. The funeral procession attended by seven to 800 mourners from Notting Hill and the surrounding communities followed Kelso's body as it was led through the streets to Kensal Green Cemetery. A few days later in Trafalgar Square, a meeting between the African Asian Congress and United Kingdom Coloured Citizens Association discussed the attack before a cry from a speaker at the event was heard saying, each and every one of us could be another Kelso Cochrane. Further shouts spoke of unifying the people of London, with another member of the crowd shouting it would be a turning point in history. A collection box was passed around during the meeting, in which they raised £128. The funds were to be donated to the victim's family. After the murder of Kelso Cochrane and in the face of rising tensions, the black community led by Claudia Jones decided to organise a carnival which would ease some of the escalating violence. Claudia Jones was born in Trinidad and after emigrating to America with her family when she was young, she campaigned heavily for human rights of persecuted communities. She was eventually deported from the United States, however as she couldn't return to Trinidad, as the British colonial governor saw her as troublesome, she was ultimately given residency in the United Kingdom. She worked as the editor of the West Indian Gazette and Afro-Asian Caribbean News, considered to be Britain's first major black newspaper. The first carnival she organised was held at St Pancras Town Hall, and footage from the event, which more closely resembled a Caribbean cabaret, was televised on the BBC. Though these carnivals were held indoors and were not the first of their kind, as smaller street carnivals had taken place as far back as the mid-1920s, some would see these events as a precursor to the Notting Hill Carnival that's held today. On Christmas Eve 1964, Claudia Jones passed away from a heart attack. She was 49 years old. Although Claudia Jones had a hand in organising the first indoor BBC televised carnivals, and some would argue created the acorn from which the Notting Hill celebration grew. It was Ronnie Lazlett who was one of the primary organisers of the carnival as we know it. 
Ronnie Lasler to London native born to Russian and Native American parents work together with the London Free School Adult Education Project to create an outdoor carnival that would entertain local children, ease racial tensions and lift the spirits of the community. The carnival has been held on the streets of Notting Hill every year in August since the mid-60s and is one of the largest street festivals in the world. June de Turville, director of the Arasantiwar Arts and Community Centre during the late 90s, was highly active in the community and helped those organising the carnival, assisting with the parade floats. Her daughter Hannah would regularly be seen dancing and having a good time with other partygoers. Hannah de Turville's bedroom walls were decorated with framed certificates displayed proudly alongside the sports medal she had won. Hannah enjoyed the performing arts, singing, drama and dancing, and was highly athletic. She had big aspirations for the future. The 15-year-old enjoyed listening to rap music and was described as bright and popular. Hannah attended St Thomas More Roman Catholic Language College in Chelsea, studying for a GCSEs in French drama and expressive arts. She had spent the new year with her family at their terraced home on 6th Avenue in Queen's Park, an area of north-west London. She was known by many of the local residents and shopkeepers were on first-name terms with the teenager. Between 4.30pm and 5pm on Friday, January 2nd, 1998, Hannah de Turville was asked by her mother to get some gold thread from a nearby knitting shop. She walked towards a shop called Applebee's on Harrow Road wearing a grey and green bomber jacket. Before Hannah entered the shop, the female proprietor heard raised voices. It sounded like Hannah was arguing with a male outside. The shopkeeper couldn't hear exactly what was said, but when Hannah entered the shop, she asked the teenager if she was arguing with someone. Almost brushing off the question, she told the shopkeeper that the man outside was just mad before changing the subject then asking for thread. Worried for her safety, the shopkeeper asked Hannah if she needed a taxi home, even offering to pay for it, though she declined the offer. Hannah purchased the item she went out for, then walked home. Later on that evening, she had planned to go out and meet a friend. At 7pm, Hannah said goodbye to her mother, who reminded her not to forget her keys. She left her home on 6th Avenue in Queen's Park, but her steps after that are unknown. She was wearing her grey and green bomber jacket and had changed into some orange jeans, a brown and blue striped top and red Reebok running shoes with white flashes on the side. Hannah had very short hair that was slicked back and distinctly parted in the middle. It wasn't unusual for her to spend the night at her friend's, which is why her mother didn't inform the police she was missing until the day after she disappeared. Hannah's family began to put up missing persons posters and made attempts to contact the media. They had contacted police to inform them of Hannah's disappearance, however officers were not sent out to talk to them until she had been missing for nearly three weeks. In the early hours of Friday, January 23, 1998, an anonymous caller contacted the lesbian and gay switchboard and claimed they had found a body near the Horsenden Hill golf course. Explaining the journey to the operator, as if they were retracing their steps, they revealed that they found a body 150 metres southeast from a concrete post. They told the call handler, you walk down a hill towards shrubs on flat land, 
and the body is in some woodland. After the call, the switchboard employee contacted the police straight away. The hunt for the body began with a helicopter and police dogs combing the area throughout the afternoon of January 23rd, but as it became too dark to continue, the search picked up the next morning. Three weeks after she was reported missing, at 9am on Saturday, January 24th, Hannah's body was discovered in some bushes near a golf course on Horsenden Hill in Greenford, 50 yards from the fifth hole. It had been partially hidden and wrapped in tarpaulin. Hannah's body had been so viciously mutilated, identification had to be made through dental records. Hannah had been stabbed around 20 times, with significant injuries to her face, but the focus of the attack was her neck. Police described it as a brutal killing carried out with a great deal of ferocity. She was wearing the same clothes she had worn on the night she disappeared, and the weapon was thought to be a single large knife. Hannah's body showed no signs of sexual assault, though police did not rule out the possibility of a sexually motivated attack. She hadn't been robbed as both money and jewellery were found on her body. Police theorised that it may have taken two people to carry a body to the wooded area where she was eventually found. They also believed that Hannah may have died within 12 hours of going missing, though her body had been kept for several days before being dumped near the Horsingdon Hill golf course. After a forensic examination of her body, the pathologist determined that Hannah would have died from the first injury she received, but the culprit continued stabbing her repeatedly. This might suggest that the assailant was acting in a fit of rage, though there were no further clues as to their motives. Hannah wouldn't have got into a car with a stranger, so if she travelled with anyone, it would have been someone she knew. The area of Horsenden Hill was popular with dog walkers during the day, and David Nicholl, a superintendent leading the investigation into Hannah's death, told the press, We are aware that the woods were also used by homosexual men. We believe it is possible that her body may have been discovered by a gay man or couple. The detective superintendent went on to say, I know there may be some concern within the gay community, but I must stress I am only interested in finding the killer of Hannah de Turville. I am not interested in what people were doing in the vicinity. Witnesses were urged to call Gay London Policing, or Gallup, as the LGBT anti-violence charity is now known, to report if they saw anything or anyone that looked suspicious after the day of Hannah's disappearance. The gay community were told that any information they provided would be treated in the strictest confidence. Despite the anonymous caller contacting Switchboard, they never came forward to formally identify themselves. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Flimsy stands slowing you down? Well, it's time to upgrade. Armadillo builds durable North American-made tablet stands and kiosks. We're so confident, we offer a lifetime warranty. So, elevate your business and visit armadillo.com. That's A-R-M-O-D-I-L-O.com and use code ACAST for 5% off. Armadillo, built to last designed to impress. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. One witness did finally come forward and inform police that she spotted three men on Horsenden Hill on the morning of January 4, 1998. As she made her way up the hill while she was out walking her dog on a cold Sunday morning, the witness spotted three men heading towards her. She couldn't understand why the three men were outside if they weren't running or walking a dog, and feeling intimidated, the witness avoided crossing paths with them. Upon hearing about Hannah's death, she reported the information to police. While authorities were under the belief that the men weren't connected with Hannah de Turville's murder, they were keen to speak to them. A task force called Operation Maidstone was set up to track down Hannah's killer. Leading the investigation, Detective Superintendent David Nichols said, clearly there is a danger the culprit could strike again. Making reference to the murder of Stephen Lawrence, he went on to say, In carrying out this review, we will try to avoid repeating any difficulties we encountered in the Lawrence case. Under Operation Maidstone, a criminal profiler, a retired member of Surrey's Criminal Investigation Department, and five forensic scientists worked together to find out what had happened. Five suspects were arrested throughout the first nine months of the investigation, however none were ultimately charged. The evidence was re-examined by new forensic experts, however police could find no clues to lead them to the culprit. A year after Hannah's murder, Detective Superintendent Nickel again spoke to the press and said we cannot find a damn motive at all. What makes someone so livid with her to stab her so many times and continue stabbing her after death? The effort that has gone into trying to hide the body, the severity of the wounds and the lack of any motive whatsoever makes it very unusual. 
A reward of £10,000 was eventually put up by police in an effort to entice someone to speak up. At the time, June de Turville, Hannah's mother, spoke to the Independent on Sunday and said it's like there is a taboo with police, especially in light of Stephen Lawrence. As much as these people would like to help, they feel they cannot be involved. Hannah's mother June was later interviewed on Crime Watch, a British television series that looked to help with unsolved cases by talking to the victim's family and members of the police force working the case. June de Turville spoke about her daughter and said, Every time I see a mother and daughter, I envy that mother. Stephen Lawrence was murdered in a racially motivated attack during 1993, and although a number of suspects were arrested, after an initial investigation the charges were dropped. His family, along with their supporters, were extremely vocal about the police failings. A public inquiry was undertaken and found the investigation was marred by a combination of professional incompetence, institutional racism and a failure of leadership by senior officers. This caused a strained relationship between the black community and the police force. During a House of Lords debate on February 24, 1999, Lord Delica said, It is almost 40 years since the Notting Hill disturbances in 1958. Casting my mind back, black people were systematically exposed to violence perpetrated by local youths and supplemented by extreme right-wing movements in the country. At that time, Kelso Cochran, a young black man, was murdered for no other reason than that he was black. That was 40 years ago. In those days, Kelso's death became a uniting force when black and white residents stood together at the funeral procession, giving a clear message that they would not tolerate racist attacks. I know because I was there. Almost 40 years on, I wish I could say the same thing following the death of Stephen Lawrence. The black community has lost confidence and it does not believe that the establishment is able to protect it. That is sad. The sooner we rebuild confidence, the better it will be for our multiracial society. A conviction for the murder of Stephen Lawrence wouldn't be seen until almost two decades after his death when Gary Dobson and David Norris, two of the original suspects, were found guilty. So where are we now? Over 900 people were questioned concerning Kelso Cochrane's murder, but it was never officially solved. His family couldn't afford to come to England at the time, and they hoped his body would be sent home. It never was. In 2003, a cold case review was undertaken. However, it was discovered that vital forensic evidence had been incinerated. The clothes that Kelso had worn on the night of his death had been destroyed in the late 60s. His brother Stanley even paid for an advert in a local newspaper. It said, Can you help? On May 17, 1959, at the corner of Goldbourne Road and Southam Street, W10, my brother Kelso Cochran was murdered. No one was ever convicted. I am seeking information from anybody who might be able to help me. No information came in. In 2011, in a book titled Murder in Notting Hill, written by journalist Mark Alden, it was claimed that a 20-year-old who worked in the Merchant Navy was responsible for the death of Kelso Cochran. Patrick Digby was one of the two males who was initially arrested. 
he was described by those that knew him as an over-the-top racist. Patrick Digby lived in Hillingdon, where he worked as a painter and decorator until his death aged 69 in 2007. A weapon was never recovered from the scene, however it was alleged that it was hidden under the floorboards of Patrick Digby's home. In May 2009, a blue memorial plaque was placed on the street corner where Kelso Cochrane was murdered. It reads Kelso Cochrane, 1927 to 1959, Antigan Carpenter was fatally wounded on this site. His death outraged and unified the community, leading to the lasting cosmopolitan tradition in North Kensington. In October 1959, a few months after Kelso's murder, and just 100 yards from where the attack took place, a shooting occurred. The victim, Dill Simon, thankfully survived, but had been set upon by a gang of seven youths, five boys and two girls who fled in a taxi after the shooting. It was thought to be racially motivated, as Dill was from the Dominican Republic and was in an interracial relationship with Mary, a white woman from Ireland. The stabbing of Kelso Cochran and the shooting of Dill Simon are not believed to be linked. The murder of Hannah de Turville remains unsolved and police still have no motive and no suspect. Detectives working the case haven't completely ruled out the possibility of her killer or killers just passing through Queen's Park on the night she disappeared, though they have stated to the press on numerous occasions it is more likely that it was someone familiar with both the area where Hannah's body was discovered and Harrow Road near where she lived. Police also believe that Hannah knew the person or persons responsible for her murder, and it's possible the culprit had a violent history. Hannah de Turville didn't have a boyfriend at the time of her murder. She was described as street smart and would not have got into a car with anyone she didn't know. Over the weekend of January 3rd and 4th, 1998, the culprit or culprits may have been seen with bloodstains on their clothes and would need to either clean or dispose of them, as the injuries to Hannah's neck would have led to some considerable cast-off. It is understood that those involved would have spent the weekend cleaning their car or home during this time, and their behaviour would have likely changed following the incident. They may have even said something in confidence to a person close to them about what had happened. There are some theories which link Hannah de Turville's murder to a man sentenced to life in prison for the rape and murder of a sex worker after he was acquitted of an almost identical crime over five years before. However, this is just speculation and no one has been charged. If you have any information about the murder of Hannah de Turville, you can contact Crime Stoppers anonymously in the United Kingdom on 0800 555 or visit crimestoppers-uk.org. Thank you for listening and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at TWAU underscore podcast or follow us on Instagram and Facebook under They Walk Among Us podcast.
Hi there, I'm Jordan. You may recognize me from my podcast, Nighttime, where I cover Canadian crime, mysteries, and strange stories. Now, I'm sorry to interrupt the show like this, but I want to tell you about something I'm really excited about. In short, I've recently expanded a series of Nighttime episodes into their own standalone podcast, and I think you may be interested. The new show is called Emma Filipoff is Missing, which, as the name suggests, covers the 2012 disappearance of then-26-year-old Emma Filipoff from Victoria, B.C. in Canada. If you're new to this case, it's the story of a beautiful and deeply artistic young woman who, despite being warm and loving, was quite complicated. Emma is a whole lot of different things. Oh, she was silly and goofy and loving and also private and secretive. Over time, Emma's often eccentric behavior began to more closely resemble a mental health issue. She was walking and um, taking all the leaves that had been piled by folks who'd raked up their lawns, taking all the leaves and spreading them everywhere. The mystery I'm investigating in this series starts in November of 2012, when an acquaintance of Emma's encounters her standing barefoot and disoriented in downtown Victoria, B.C., he was so concerned he phoned police to report her being in severe distress. They claimed that they asked all the right questions in order to ascertain whether or not she was safe and determined that she was okay to be on her own on the streets of Victoria, barefoot in November. That was the last time anyone ever saw her. If you'd like to learn more about Emma's story, please hit pause Open your podcatcher and subscribe to Emma Filipoff is Missing. That's Emma, F-I-L-L-I-P-O-F-F, is Missing. In the time frame I knew her, like she was just radiating a really beautiful energy. And I, I think her Nicole story really illuminates how complex mental illness is. I just wish I, I don't know, I, I just, I wish there was so much more I could do. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.